I grew that company from $4 million to $20 million in a little over six years. And then we were hit by the financial crisis of 2008, but more importantly, we were hit by the government shutdowns. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I will be your worst podcast host for the day. And I'm here with featured guest, Mark Pierce. Mark, are you ready to rock? Yes, I am. Let's do it. Now, Mark is an attorney, an accountant, and the owner of Cloud Peak Law. With over three decades of experience, Mark has truly seen it all, at least from a legal perspective. This is apparent from the diversity of fields that range from bankruptcy and estate planning to oil and gas and securities. He's really covered it all. And he's not only a lawyer, but as I mentioned earlier, a CPA and a serial entrepreneur. So Mark, take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life. I'd be glad to. I uh, grew up in Wyoming, which is uh, a place that very few people have ever been. It's an isolated desert environment of about 350 to 400,000 people located in the Old West. And I grew up in a very rough environment. I started roughnecking on oil rigs when I was 14 years old. I was large for my age, so they didn't ask for any IDs at the time. I ended up losing a couple fingers and having a few less than a couple sewed back on. I also uh, tried my hand at bull riding because I thought that might be a good way in which to get to see the United States, but I spent most of the time on the ground after about 10, 10 times giving that a go, I gave it up. So I thought perhaps I should go to college and learn something that might involve something that's a little less dangerous than roughnecking and rodeoing. And the result, I think, of that rodeoing and in combination with having played a great deal of rugby in my 20s is that I had to do a complete restoration of my uh, cervical spine about three years ago. So it's fused, plated, and I'm back over to a little bit over six feet as a result of it. I got an inch of height back from that whole thing. So that's my tidbit from growing up in Wyoming. I spent about 35 years away from Wyoming. When I graduated from college here, there weren't any jobs to be had. People were too broke to go broke. There had been a collapse in the oil and gas industry. And so I went out and about. I worked for a firm out of Philadelphia and I worked in Denver. I worked in Phoenix, San Francisco, and Miami was the last place where I worked. I moved back to Wyoming about eight years ago for some very specific reasons, but we'll get into here momentarily. And I've enjoyed my time being back. This COVID has put a little bit of a damper on things that I would like to have done over the last several months, but hopefully we'll get out of it and we'll move on. Rodeo, ladies and gentlemen, that is a crazy activity. <laughs> when you watch rodeo, I think if I ever did rodeo, they could make a movie about it. They'd call it Up in the Air. <laughs> you think you're going to be. It's the yeah. ground worry about. <laughs> yeah, the up in the air part may be the fun part. <laughs> Let me ask you, you know, I've I've learned a little bit about you and a little bit about Wyoming. I'd just be curious if you can just tell us the unique feature of Wyoming about trusts and, and other legal aspects for people. Let's say some of my listeners are all the way across the world. And they don't even really know Wyoming, which I believe is near Canada, the northern border of America, but just 
tell us why Wyoming has some interesting or unique features and what they are. Well, Wyoming was one of the first, I'm sorry, Wyoming was the first state to put together a limited liability company statute. And what we did with that statute over the last 40 years as a result of our input into the legislature is that we have made Wyoming an alternative for offshore trust protection and offshore entity protection for people from the United States and also from people without the United States. We were termed by Sam Western in The Economist magazine as Wyoming, the new alternative to your offshore trust jurisdictions. We have more limited liability companies registered with the state of Wyoming than we have people, cattle, and sheep. Hmm. So I think interesting to put apart with that. We were the first to recognize single member LLCs. We have a very, very difficult standard to try to pierce through corporate veils on LLCs. And beginning about 20 years ago, we started to put together domestic asset protection trusts. And we have put together a chancery court, which protects the anonymity of the LLCs and the anonymity of those trusts. And it's very difficult to break through and find out the individuals behind that. Now, of course, the Internal Revenue Service will know, your consensual business relations will know, but the general public cannot track who's behind the LLC or the trust. And I think that's one of the principal benefits of Wyoming and was a principal reason for my moving back here. And when people outside of America think about forming a f company in America, they oftentimes don't think about bringing asset disclosures to America, number one. And they usually think about Delaware or Nevada, I think was another one I remember some people talking about. What is it, you, you know, if you're a, a foreigner, a non, let's say US resident, and you thought about opening up a trust in Wyoming, why would you do that? And I have un one other thing I've heard in Asia, I've heard people say that actually the secrecy laws, the protection of secrecy is even better in America than what it is outside. In fact, American government tries to break the, the veil of secrecy outside of America and may be more successful at doing that. But just curious, your thoughts. You know, one of the things that we do here is we provide what you can have as a wing trust, meaning you've got a trust established in an offshore jurisdiction, but you want to be able to do business in, in the United States, or you want to be doing business on an anonymous basis, you'll put together what they call a wing trust that operates in tandem with your offshore trust. So you get the level of anonymity and secrecy and protection of Wyoming laws in making particular types of investments, generally within the United States, but sometimes without the United States as well, particularly into Canada and those areas. And you're exactly right. You know, the, the United States is, is very keen on going to offshore jurisdictions and finding out what U.S. residents or anybody else has been up to for that matter, but not so keen on finding out what people are doing within their own country. Just as long as you report the taxes and pay them, they leave you alone. And like I've told people, you know, over the last, say, 20 years, we've done well over 20,000 LLCs in this state. And the number of times that I've been subpoenaed by outside governmental agencies in the United States, whether the federal or state amounts to exactly zero. So they're not interested. They're not looking. You're free to do what you want to do as long as you're filing your correct tax returns. And I think that's an important element for the listener here, because sometimes when we think about trusts and we think about offshore and that type of thing, it has the connotation that you're concealing assets from the IRS. And what you've explained here is you are talking about corporate secrecy, but not secrecy, obviously, related to the IRS. So you are complying with those requirements. And then your relationship with the IRS is naturally a secret relationship 
or a confidential relationship unless something very extreme happens. But even if you become president, it may not be revealed. <laughs> but the point is, is that we're talking about somebody, let's just say a, a person in Asia decides that they really like a million dollar house in America. Would that say they, they want to have that veil of secrecy as they go in? And so a Wyoming trust would allow that? Yes, it would. In fact, what we do is we, we put together an asset protection trust and then underneath that as a sub-trust using LLCs, we do a land trust and we transfer the land into that trust. That way you've got three levels of secrecy before they ever get up to the trust. We never disclose the name of the trust. And the idea behind that is, is if they're trying to run down the assets you may or may not own in the country, they're never going to find you as an owner of that particular piece of property. And they won't be able to connect the dots on those LLCs and those trusts. And so, so the, the last thing on that too, is that some people, when they consider trusts, they think, okay, this is criminal activity. You know, first they think hiding from the IRS or hiding from government and paying taxes. The second thing is they think criminal activity. Why would anybody ever? I mean, why would you conceal, you know, any assets? Why not have it out in the open? What is the argument there? Why would you want them out in the open? You know, this isn't like the person sitting next to you on a plane where you disclose things you would never disclose to anyone. This is your private life and you should keep it private. And the anonymity of an LLC or a trust allows you to do that. Why do these people care? Why are they so curious about what it is that you're up to? The other thing is, is that if you're in business or in a profession, you want to be able to protect those assets because, a lot, you know, like you said earlier, it's not so much that I, that I entered into a bad deal. I didn't, but it turned out to be a bad deal. So I'd like to lose that deal, but I don't want to lose everything else that I have as well. So part of protection and protecting your assets against creditors who are not consensual creditors is maintaining the anonymity and the privacy away from them so they can't find the asset. Yeah, I read a great book called How to Become Invisible. And it was, it was about know, five or 10 years ago. And I know some of those things are no longer applicable, but it was a very, you know, he was making the point that there's bad people out there and there's people that will pursue you in ways that, and also there are evil people. And he said that, you know, one of the things is sometimes you need to buy time. If you just give out all of your information, they can come at you so hard and fast. But if you can buy some time to slow them down, like they're going to go knock on a door of a business and then look into a closet and find that you're not in there. <laughs> and that's the place where you receive your mail right there. You've got an advance notice that a bad guy is on the way after you. And that gives you the hours that are necessary to protect yourself. You know, so I found that pretty fascinating. Yeah, I do too. You know, and it seems to me like a lot of people, will come in to do asset protection planning after a friend of theirs or a relative has suffered through a, a terrible divorce or a table, terrible business partner or had issues within their private practice, particularly doctors. And they come in at the end of the day and say, I could have taken basic steps that would have avoided all of this nightmare. And then I could hire a good attorney. He stonewalls them. I work a, you know, a settlement that makes sense. And at the end of the day, it allows me to go on with my life. And it's the same way with the Internal Revenue Service. You report everything to them. If there's something that they're doing that you don't like, you report everything to them and you pick the fight and you litigate the fight. You're not hiding anything. So if you pick the fight, you have the fight on your own terms. If the IRS picks the fight, they've got the fight on their terms. So, you know, having this asset protection trust, having done everything up 
upfront or an LLC upfront and making the reporting requirements, IRS doesn't care as long as they get the money. So that's an ounce of an ounce of protection is worth a pound of cure. And it's in every area of your life, your financial area of your life, your personal information, also your health, you know, what are you doing today to make sure that you maintain a healthy lifestyle? Are you eating good food? Are you exercising? Are you doing simple things that if you go five or 10 years from now, you could get diabetes and other lifestyle type diseases that you kind of look back and go, God, I could have prevented that. And I didn't. So, wow. Really love the conversation and it definitely provides value for me and for the listeners. And I'm going to put the links in the show notes. So on any of the listeners that want to meet Mark, talk to Mark, learn more about what he's doing, you'll have it all in the show notes. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. It was uh, 2004 and I was living in Florida and I needed a break from the practice of law. So I looked around and thought about, you, you were looking at a macroeconomic environment that had huge infusions of cash coming in. So I looked and I said, look, I think that based after 9-11, that anything involving military or government services is going to be a booming business. So I ended up buying into this trucking company that providing moving services primarily to the military in Florida. Florida's chock full of bases, so it's a good place to be. I grew that company from $4 million to $20 million in a little over six years. And then we were hit by the financial crisis of 2008, but more importantly, we were hit by the government shutdowns that were perpetrated, perpetuated by the Tea Party that went on at the time. And I've had such over a six to eight year period that I just couldn't believe what was going on. And I thought that I could power through it. If I had had a lick of sense about it, I would have looked at what was coming down the pipe and said, no, I need to stop this now. And I would have gotten out of the business at a time when I could have gotten out of the business, reassessed and then gotten back into the business or found another business to get into. So I went from having about a net worth of around eight and a half to $9 million to having a net worth of about a little over a million dollars with a bank on my tail, but no IRS problems, by the way. <laughs> That's the one creditor you don't want to have. So my lesson was, like Will Rogers said, when you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. It never gets better. I reacted too slow. And I can tell you, having been a former bankruptcy attorney, everyone acts too slowly to a coming catastrophe, even when you see it coming. You just can't quite believe that it's there. So that's that was my worst investment. And it was not about getting into it. I did well for the first six years, just getting out of it. And why do you think that people don't get out of it? fast enough or they're forced to get out of it it's interesting i think it's psychological i had a friend of mine who sent me an article exactly on this point and they were dealing with the impending holocaust in nazi germany in the 30s and why so many intelligent people who could see what was happening said no it can't be that bad it'll get better and they were educated they were intelligent they could have gotten out and then the door shut behind them and then they put that analysis over to what we do individuals like in a bad marriage or what we do as business people in a business that turns bad, we just can't quite let go. And that's, I think what it is. I think it's a psychological disposition. And I don't think we see it as clearly as we should. I think sometimes we wear rose colored glasses. And I was particularly guilty in that instance. The first time that they shut down the government is when I should have shut down my company. If I had, I'd have saved most of my wealth, but I kept thinking I could, I can power through this, it's gonna be fine, it will get better. 
if I could have lasted another two years, it would have been, but I didn't and I couldn't. Mm. So, so how um, would you summarize the learnings from this? The learning from it is like any stock trade. You always have your stop loss, right? You say, look, if it goes below this, sell it no matter what, let me reassess. So when I built this business out and the fallback began coming, what I should have done is say, look, when it gets to this point and these numbers start showing up, then I'm going to collapse that business, sell what I can, liquidate the rest, and I'm going to go reassess where it is that I want to go. And if I had done that earlier, I could have saved that business and saved a substantial amount of wealth. But that being said, I wouldn't have got into the commoditized legal services business that I'm doing now with my son. And I'm having just a wonderful time doing that. So in that way, it was a blessing. That's all. Yeah, that's a great lesson, you know, as it is adversity that brings out the opportunities that we get in life. Let me uh, say a couple of things about what I take away from your story. I think the first thing you mentioned something about infusion of cash into the economy. I think it's very apropos thing to remember is that particularly the, the entity that has the biggest ability to infuse cash into an economy is the government particularly the U.S. government, unlike other governments, most other governments around the world, most other governments around the world don't have the capacity to print money, yet not see their currency massively devalue. That is the constraint to printing money for majority of currencies. America has been able to fight off that constraint because it's a, you know, a reserve currency, but it's starting to definitely start to see some weakness. And you know, there's people that argue that the US dollar could get very weak. But I think it's important to know that when a government like the US government injects liquidity and cash into an economy, that they oftentimes cause a bubble, whether that's injecting access to capital or direct liquidity. And access to capital came in the mortgage market during the period that you're talking about. And basically the idea is bringing in a lower quality credit applicants into the market and then forcing basically the whole system to provide funding, which then brought a huge number of people into the mortgage market and that naturally pushed up price. Same thing in the student loan market where the US government has been very aggressive at pumping money into the student loan market and therefore education prices go up. And recently in the stock market where we've seen most people would look at the stock market in the US and say, hmm, it shouldn't come down with all the losses and everybody out of work, but it went up. And that's because of an injection of cash. And so I think one of the lessons I take away is that sometimes you, you're riding a wave of cash, of, of excitement, of good times. And it's time that you're not always preparing yourself for when that cash will be pulled away. So that's number one. Number two, is the idea of comfort. You know, I mean, ultimately we want comfort in life and we want comfort for our family, we want comfort for our friends, we want comfort for ourselves. And so the idea of taking action on something that it's just uncomfortable for those, as you mentioned about, you know, pre-Nazi, you know, takeover basically of Germany who could see things coming, the discomfort of having to pack everything up and, you know, really uproot our whole family. I mean, who wants discomfort? And so I think that that, you know, sometimes we have to say that we must take some discomfort in a time to prepare ourselves for the worst. And this brings me to the last takeaway, and that's what I call the one question. And my one question always is, if I was not in this business today, and knowing what I know now about this business, would I enter this business? 
and you can replace this business with this relationship or this investment or this stock. And the key thing is knowing what I know now about this, would I enter it today? If the answer is yes, then double down and focus in on that relationship, that stock or that investment. But if the answer is no, then it's time to get out. And there is no maybe, you've got to pick a yes or a no. And this is an example of how that tool can help us sometimes when we're caught in that situation where we're not exactly sure. So for the listeners out there, ask yourself this question right now. If you're in trouble, you're dealing with a struggle right now, whether that's a personal or professional struggle, ask yourself, knowing what I know now, if this person walked up to me today, would I start this relationship? Would I start this business, this opportunity appeared? If the answer is no, you've got your answer. If the answer is yes, double down and make it work. So any other thoughts? No, I just think, you know, we'll get through this whole COVID thing one way or the other. And I think that my own hope is that by the end of this year, we will be in a different political environment. And I think that that's going to weigh mightily on the economic and cultural decisions that the United States will make over the next many, many years. And I hope that that benefits all of our former allies and partners in this. And I would hope that we become more of a player in that market. I think one of the things that I really was disappointing to me is that we didn't join the TPP after having spent so much effort in getting there and then pulling back at the last minute. And I think, you know, given where you are and your involvement in this area, I think that would go a long way to balancing out the power vacuum in that region. Yeah, well, it's definitely uh, a lot going on. And as we sit in Asia and look at what's going on in the U.S., it is pretty shocking. It is shocking. So, all right, based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I think what you have to have is you need a stop loss when you go in. And I think that you have to have, the most important thing is you have to have people around you to give you advice who are disinterested with, not so much you know that they don't like you, but they're disinterested in your business. They're not interested in the business from the standpoint of having a monetary investment, or they don't have a family relationship who can look at you and say, you know what, here's what's going on. This is what's happening. I think that you should consider these things. If you get that, I think that you'll be able to make those calls because psychologically you'll have the backup and you'll know you've got that independent corroboration that allows you to think you're right i think i'll double down or no you're right i think i need to get out of this thing so that would be my advice is to surround yourself by people who can give you hard advice i call it the dutch uncle syndrome who sits there and says you know not everything's a bowl of roses kid i think you need to look at it differently that's great so, that's a great one and that's, you know, we've got a lot of stories and I've basically come up with six common mistakes. And the third one is driven by emotion or flawed thinking. And what I tell people is, how do you overcome that mistake is by finding an independent or as you said, disinterested, but knowledgeable person. They don't have to be an expert in the area, but they have to have some knowledge and have some, you know, concern for you. And then listen to what they say listen to what they say. So I think it's great advice. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Number one goal is to begin the rollout of a number of new products that we've got and to bring those products into additional states and possibly raise a bit of money in a private equity function that will allow us to build a bigger team than what we've got right now. 
We've proven out our business concept in four states. It's working very readily. And I would like to bring some more people in to take those packages out and drive them in other states. That's exciting. Well, we'll check in in 12 months and learn more about it. And for the listeners out there that want to find more, just go to the show notes and you can get it, all the information there. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Mark, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, and I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. I say brave because when I ask most people to come on the show, you know what they say? No. Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. So you've now turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, you know, to be really frank with you, be optimistic, but be cautious and be realistic and surround yourself by good advisors. And when you get a good advisor, shut up and take their advice. <laughs> and I'm going to shut up there and close it down. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host for the day, saying I'll see you on the upside.